Well, for our time in God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, a familiar chapter to anyone who knows the Bible. But I think it's especially appropriate on a weekend like this when we just celebrated the Lord's birth at the Christmas holiday and also looking forward to a new year and how we can push kind of those reset buttons in our mind to fix our attention appropriately and in a northern fashion to God as the new year begins. Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read the section that we're going to be studying for us. Uh, A lot of it's going to be build up and then we'll look at Paul's uh, sermon in particular in a minute. Acts chapter 17. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him and some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is? What is this new teaching that you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, All the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are a very very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if, perhaps, they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist Even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. 
because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again. Stop right there for now. Christmas season invites us all to the wonderful privilege of considering God becoming man, the incarnation of God. It describes Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who also became fully human in that manger in Bethlehem. He began to be human at his conception, truly. Any mind that ponders this unimaginable reality immediately comes up against unsolvable mystery and mysteries. Part of the acceptance of mystery fuels, I think, the essence of worship because we realize that God is beyond our wildest thoughts and he cannot fit in between our ears. We realize that God is straining and stretching our imaginations as we grope and long and reach for him in worship. So for our study this morning, I want us to sit at the feet of Paul, who actually, you may have picked it up and you may not have, in preaching in the Areopagus of Athens, gave a Christmas sermon. He gave an incarnation sermon. He talked about God becoming a man and who God is in heaven and who God is on earth. He talks about the incarnation of God as a unique happening that only happened once in history. He also gives it in a really unique uh, setting there in Athens. Let me give you some background on, on what's going on here. Uh, a year and a half ago, my wife and I were able to, to visit uh, Athens and uh, tour around there. We went up on the Areopagus. We went up on Mars Hill, and I was... Uh, Stunned at the, the smallness of it at one level and also stunned at, at the fact that where Paul was preaching this sermon is on a little outcropping of rock right underneath the great temple of Greece. It was literally in the shadow of the temple of idols like no other temple had ever been built. Now, Paul's late missionary journeys centered around the cities of the world. Uh, in, in the beginning, he was going to smaller communities and any synagogue that would hear him, he would preach. But by his third missionary journey, he was going to major cities, Corinth, Berea, Thessalonica, now in Athens, all throughout Asia Minor. He eventually gets to Europe. E.M. Blaylock comments that during Paul's day, Athens was in the late afternoon of her glory. That's important. Athens was on the decline, and in Athens' place, Greece's place, was rising, what empire? The Roman Empire. So when you have the time of Jesus and you have the time of, of Paul, it's the hinge between the rule of Rome and the influence of Greece. The New Testament was written in Greek, not Latin, which tells you what the, the lingua franca of the day was. History informs us that the Greeks were on top of the intellectual world. They were the influencers of all societal things in 
Palestine as well as even in Rome over in Italy. They were the influencers of philosophy and art. The Greeks lived on the second floor, as it were, culturally, and everyone else was on the first floor. Greece, and particularly Athens, was the, the world that Plato and Socrates and Aristotle had built. However, it's very easy to trace why Greece declined as a world empire and Rome took over. It happened over the 27-year civil war between Greece and the Peloponnesus, or Greece and Sparta. If you look at mainland Greece and Sparta, uh, we call it the Peloponnesus below, there's a little isthmus on which Corinth was, was situated. And they had a civil war that lasted almost three decades that took their focus off world influence and put their influence on, their, their attention rather, on each other in that civil war that opened the door for the rise of the Roman Empire. Athens never recovered as a world power, but still remained as an intellectual power. Socrates had taught in the Agora of Athens, the open space, the city marketplace of Athens. The Academy of Plato was still in Athens. The Lyceum of Aristotle was in Athens. The Porch of Zeno in Athens. The Garden of Epicurus in Athens. Athens was still the hub of discussions about philosophy, poetry, politics, religion, anything and everything, as we'll see in our text. People just like to come to Athens and talk about stuff. It was the art center of the world. The great Parthenon, the most beautiful of all temples that I just referenced, was up on top above the Areopagus on the Acropolis. By Paul's time, philosophers and thinkers were only a distant memory and those who were pushing their own philosophies were were imitators. These philosophical giants were gone, but they were regurgitating and reciting all that they had done and said, even memorizing major parts of, of Plato and Aristotle and discussing these things. And just as we are always looking for the latest style, the latest fashion, they were always looking for the latest thinking or the newest philosophical idea. And to do so, you always came to Athens to try it out. Along comes the Apostle Paul to Athens. Now, make no mistake, Paul was no intellectual lightweight. He was trained by one of the most prestigious university centers of the day, Tarsus, He'd been born there and grew up there. His education was a prized one and thorough. He was extremely well-read. He was knowledgeable in rhetoric and philosophy. Just read the first five chapters of 1 Corinthians and you can see that very clearly. Read the book of Romans and its argumentation and you can know that very certainly. And here in Acts chapter 17, he seems to be right at home going tango with these intellectuals. He has an opportunity here to preach to the intelligentsia of the world. But he doesn't rely on his education. He doesn't rely on his rhetoric. He relies on the facts, as we'll see in a minute, the ridiculous facts of the gospel. You can see him outline these in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, also in Colossians 2, 8 and 9. But let's pick up the narrative here 
in our text in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, who are, who are them? This is Silas and Timothy. They have been in Berea and Thessalonica. Paul had been taken to Athens. He's waiting on them there in Athens. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. I don't think Paul intended to evangelize Athens. I think it was just a, a holding place until Timothy and, and Silas came and he could pick them up and keep heading northeast. But it was something that he could not resist. Why? Because he was, look at the text, he was provoked within him. The Greek word means to be stimulated to irritation. He was bugged. He's walking around and everywhere he walks beholding a city full of idols. Like any stranger, Paul was looking at the sights and listening to the sounds and probably eating the foods as he walked around Athens. And he saw an unbelievable display of the numerous idols and statues that were worshipped by the Athenians on every corner almost. These statues were beautiful artistically, but Paul was not impressed by art for art's sake. The idolatry, the sensualism of all of it deeply disturbed him. One philosopher says that Athens had more images than all the rest of Greece put together, more idols. Pliny states that at the time of Nero, Athens had over 30,000 public statues besides the countless private idols that were in homes. Petronius says that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. That's quite a statement. Every gateway, every porch had its protecting God. They lined the street. Every eye could see an idol from every angle in every place. So Paul's walking around looking at these idols. He had an Old Testament. He was Jewish enough to know what idolatry was and could recognize it instantaneously as could everyone else. And he was provoked, agitated, stirred up, convicted. Verse 17, so he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Reasoning about what? The context is to say, these are false, only Yahweh, only God is real, specifically in Jesus. And in the marketplace, every day with those who happen to be present. I love that. Evangelizing just whoever was present. This is the, the open area, the marketplace. He would just stand there, listen to people talking and say, let me proclaim to you something you may not know. And also, verse 18, also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. This, this is interesting. These were the erudite men. The, the, they were stuck on themselves, stuck up as we would say. But they began listening to Paul, who was obviously drawing a crowd, and the, the big weights, the, the big wigs came and started listening to Paul. The Epicureans taught that pleasure and avoidance of pain are the goals of man's life. I think we're all a little bit Epicureans at heart, aren't we? They were materialists who believed that the body and soul disintegrate at death. The Stoics, on the other hand, saw self-mastery and discipline as the greatest virtue. They believed that 
it was gain, that uh, virtue was gained by being indifferent to both pleasure and pain. Just the opposite of the Epicureans. And so these two enemies philosophically come together in curiosity with this idol babbler named Paul. You know, I find it interesting to hear those two philosophies and how those are represented on the university campuses today. I was a college pastor for a decade and a half and saw this over and over and over. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. So you have people responding to Paul differently. Uh, who is this guy? He's nobody. He's, he's a Jew from Tarsus and he's here telling us how to think philosophically? But what's interesting is others said, he is a proclaimer of strange deities. Why? Why? Here's the key to the whole passage. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. We've talked about this many times. You go through the book of Acts, there's more emphasis and highlight put on the resurrection than there even is the cross. Now, you can't have the resurrection without the cross. So it doesn't demean the cross. But the cross is nothing without the resurrection. Paul said so in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus would have just died and that would have been it. His signature message is right there. Jesus and the resurrection. Just a little footnote for you and me. Whenever you're sharing the gospel, it must include that Jesus rose from the dead. Not just that he died for your sins, but that he rose victorious over death. Make sure that's in. It's the heart of the matter. Paul did not debate on their level. He simply preached Christ and the resurrection which validated his being God incarnate, Jesus himself. Verse 19. And they took him. Literally, they escorted him. They, they grabbed him. They nabbed him. And brought him to the Areopagus, saying... Now stop right there. The Areopagus is no small thing. I, I, I was confused about this until Kim and I were in Athens last year. The Areopagus is a prominent rock outcropping located northwest of the Acropolis, the Temple Mount up there in, in Athens. It was just a little, it's probably 100 yards by 50 yards wide. It's not very big. And it was a place up on top of a rock that was, that was a, a reserved for murder trials or major philosophical debates. So it's important that they take him there. He literally just got escorted into the, the, the highest possible place of debate. Like a street musician who gets escorted to Carnegie Hall. It's basically what just happened here. They brought him to the, up to the Areopagus saying, may we know this new teaching which you are proclaiming. Now it's not just the Epicureans and the Stoics, it's everyone of philosophical import. Tell us about it. Why? Now we find out their heart in verse 20. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know therefore what these mean. And then I love his footnote in verse 21. He gives us a little cultural insight. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They found something new. 
Imagine this. Imagine if you didn't know the gospel and someone stands out here in the street, draws a crowd, we go outside our building and we go listen to them and they say, I want to tell you about a man in another city who was crucified, buried, and then rose from the dead. You would say, this guy's crazy. This didn't happen every day. Verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. There's actually a bigger rock that they used to put people, a, a little, little tinier rock on top of this rock outcropping. I have a picture standing there with a line of people also wanting to stand there. They put him up there in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. That's really interesting. He starts with a presupposition that everyone is religious, including them. How do you know that? For I was passing through, verse 23, and examining the objects of your worship, and I also found an altar with this inscription. Now, stop right there. We learned about all of the idols in Athens on every doorstep, on every corner, in every marketplace, idol, idol, idol. Paul's looking at them and he's looking at this idol and the name, this idol and the name, this idol and the name, but he came across an idol that, that really caught his attention. I found an altar with this inscription. By the way, it's, doesn't, he doesn't say statue and he doesn't say idol. He says altar. Why? Because they didn't know what the God was, so it was just an altar. To an unknown God. Then he says this. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this unknown God, I proclaim to you. Quite a statement. Paul says, I'm going to take you at face value that you've admitted that there's a God you don't know. He's the only true and living God, and I'm about to tell you about him. That's what he does. So as he unpacks this sermon now that he begins in verse 23, he provides the men of Athens with intellectual and supernatural reasons they ought to worship Jesus as the only true God. And we're going to go through this really, really fast. Six reasons to worship Jesus Christ. Six reasons to worship Jesus Christ. The first is in verses 23 and 24. Jesus is the divine incarnation. Jesus is the divine incarnation. The first thing you'll need to understand is Paul's main point is to put verse 18 with verse 23. It's ignorance what you worship in ignorance I'm about to tell you in knowledge the God that Paul is proclaiming to them is Jesus Christ this was the same tactic he he gave everywhere he went look at verse 23 it's passing through there's an unknown God and then he says in verse 24 the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Listen to what he told the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, that's what philosophy is, according to the elementary principles of the world, just 
worldly thinking, rather than according to the person of Christ. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and you've been made complete in him, and he is the head over all rule and authority. John 1, 18, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. This altar was empty. Jesus is the icon, the image in Colossians of what cannot be seen. He's the what you can see of what cannot be seen. So he says in verse 24, the God who made the world, now not just any God, this is going like above Zeus and all things in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. None of the Greek gods were Lord of heaven and earth. It was all split up, their rules were. Does not dwell in temples made with hands. He, get, he goes to basically the, the, the major tenet about idolatry in the Old Testament over and over and over. Idolatry is the human heart's attempt to control and domesticate God. How can you make something that made you? How can you fashion something that fashioned the world? Read Isaiah 66, and you can see the ridiculous nature of an idol maker making a God. I mean, just think of this making a God. He says, just, just for reference, intellectually, philosophically, and religiously, the God who made the heavens and the earth does not dwell in temples, don't miss that last phrase, made with hands. You see his tongue and cheek switching, he's doing with them. So you're, you're making all these things, but the God who made everything was not made with human hands. Jesus is the only incarnation of the divine nature. Which leads him to verse 25. Jesus is the sovereign creator. The sovereign creator. <clears throat> Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. You know, there's something interesting that happened about uh, with these, uh, um, these idols and even up on the, the, um, the temple mount up there on the top where Parthenon was and all these gods were, were statued there. You know, when my wife and I were in Athens, they had a major, major uh, uh, renovation happening on the Parthenon. And it was amazing to see all the scaffolding and to realize, first of all, most of the gods, the, the statues had been removed or were put in a museum and, and there were replicas there, that the, these statues, which were gods, needed help. They needed maintenance. They needed repair. And that's the point Paul is making here. He, neither he is served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all, to all life and breath and all things. One of the disheartening things about the, the beautiful artistic statues in Athens 
I don't know how to say this gingerly. Most of them had these what looked like thorns or little prickly things off the top of their heads so the birds couldn't desecrate them. Need I go any further? In other words, these gods couldn't even keep the birds from doing their business on them. Paul's almost laughing at this. Back to Colossians 1. For by him all things were created. Verse 16. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. John 1.1, we just read it Christmas Eve. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, that is Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, just as Paul says here, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, actually was the agent of, of creation. The apostle is doing two things here. He's showing the essence of God's creatorship as well as the stupidity of idolatry. He is Lord, sovereign. He rules the world. And at the heart of the gospel is to understand him as who he is. He's the sovereign creator, not a created statue. He cannot be domesticated. I love Jesus' words to John on Patmos. Revelation 1.18, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Never a time when he came into being by the creation of human hands. He alone is the sovereign creator. A third reason to worship Jesus Christ is he's the vital source. The vital source. He's the nexus, the causation of the nations and of life. Verse 26, he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. (laughs) It's interesting. For those who say... uh, liberal scholars who say that Adam and Eve are just representatives of a group of men and a group of women. Paul says what Paul affirms also in Romans 4, comparing Adam to Jesus, that Adam was one man. He made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And look at this. Having determined, speaking of God, the agency of Jesus Christ, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitation. God is the source and divine manager of all nations. He makes their times. He makes their boundaries. Now, frankly, we could learn much in our day and in our country about how we think about the nations and specifically how we think about our own nation in reference to the kingdom of God here. Let me just say it as plainly as I can. Too many Christians wrongly believe that one of our Christian mandates, one of our Christian hopes, is the preservation of the United States of America. It is God who has determined the time and the boundaries of this nation. It is God who has not delegated to man 
the management or the preservation of any nation. Now, Romans 13 says, obey the government. We can vote, vote our conscience, but ultimately, this nation will not last one nanosecond longer than God's appointed habitation and time. Ruling our nation, preserving our nation is not our mandate. Being faithful citizens of the kingdom of God is, being good citizens of our country is, and then God will mark off the, the time and even the boundaries of every nation, not just ours. It is God who has determined the time and the boundaries of every nation. He has not delegated that management to anyone on this earth. In fact, we find our priority in verse 27. That they should seek God. God has made the nations what they are, that they should seek God. If, if, perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Boy, there's so much historical data in here. You look at an the nations of Europe, Germany and England that once had the gospel at the tip of the spear of their government that were ruling from a perspective of what God had done for sinners in Christ and have drifted from that and you can literally see the drifting of morality, the drifting of, of, of cultural norms, the drifting of, of a marriage God gives opportunity that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though the, he is not far from each one of us. We are guides as Christians to help people groping for and seeking God. It is our mandate to introduce them to the only one who can satisfy their souls. And don't miss the end of verse 27. Verse 27. God has promised his nearness for those who seek him. It reminds me of Isaiah 55, verse 6, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. That's the same as he is not far from each one of us. He's the vital source. He is the reason nations rise and fall. He is sovereign over that. But it's not only in the macro level of nations, it's also in the micro level of, of us individually. A fourth reason to worship Jesus Christ is he's the gracious sustainer. He moves from the nations now to the individual. For in him, we live, we move, we exist. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also, we also are his offspring. Vital means life for life giving and Jesus is the source of all life, yours included. John 4.21 says that Jesus is the giver of all life, both physical and spiritual. You know, this is a problem for evolution. Carbon bonds do not naturally look for each other in the universe. They have to be organized into organisms. 
The very word implies an organizer. In him we live and move and exist. You do understand that as you sit in this room right now, every single time that your heart contracts and expands and pumps blood through your veins, every single heartbeat you have, every breath you draw, every time you exhale, every time you blink, is God sustaining your life. And one day, Psalm 139 says, he has all of our days numbered. One day, he'll stop. And life is about being ready for that final terminus. When's the last time you just stopped to thank God for your life? Oh, we can complain about our lives. We can see our problems. But when's the last time you stopped and just thought, God, thank you for me, for, for, for life? And move. Everything we do to enjoy this life, everything we do to exist in this life is a gift of God. Verse 29, being then the offspring of God, he quoted one of their own who says we are all offspring of God, saying, see, even you recognize a creator. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. That's the stuff out of which idols were made. An image formed by the art and thought of man. Jesus sustains and marks the cycles of world powers and nations as well as our own existence. He sustains our heartbeat, our breath by the word of his power and all for the reason that we would seek God. Every single moment he gives us is an act of grace that we would turn our thoughts and attention to him. Colossians 1.17, we talked about 16 earlier. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the sustainer. I remember taking a biology class in, in college and uh, the instructor who was no Christian, no friend of Christianity was talking about the atom and the subnuclear parts of the atom and the subnuclear parts of the subnuclear parts and quantum physics. And, getting, and in the end, I remember this instructor saying, we have no idea what force holds every molecule together in this universe because inertia alone should cause the, the spinning of the, of the nuclear elements in an atom to explode at every, any given moment. And I remember thinking, I, I think I know who holds the atom together because I had a really good youth pastor at the time who was telling me those things. He is holding every atom together right now. And if you want proof of that, in 2 Peter 3, there is a time when he will let them go and the earth will be destroyed. A fifth reason to worship Jesus is he's the incomparable deity. Therefore, verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. What does this mean? Having overlooked the times of ignorance, 
God has not always acted in judgment in the past. Look back at verse 23. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance. See that? He overlooked that. He's gracious. How do we know he's gracious? Because they were alive to listen to the gospel in that moment. That's how. His point is that to compare their ignorant worship to Jesus ought to be the conclusion to find God's final declaration of Jesus who is incomparable. He's the incomparable deity. If you compare him to any deity, he'll win. Notice that God is proclaiming what Paul is declaring. Paul is declaring Jesus and the resurrection. God is proclaiming it. Idolatry is the ultimate foolishness. But we should not be so quick to judge the Athenians before searching out our own lives and seeing our cadre of idols that we hold. They can be either material or ideological. An idol is anything for which you will sin to get or to enjoy. And anything that you'll sin because you lose the enjoyment or the possession of it. That's an idol. Because only God, only God is worthy of such respect. Look at the comprehensive nature. God is now declaring to men, universally, that look at this comprehensive. All everywhere, does that cover everything? All everywhere should repent. Jesus is the only way, and Paul proclaimed it right there on the Areopagus. This is building, and it builds to the final reason to worship Jesus Christ and the ultimate reason that these Athenians should repent and follow Christ. Jesus is the inescapable judge. The inescapable judge. Verse 31. Because. He's telling everyone to repent. Everyone must get ready. Everyone be ready to meet him. Because he has fixed a day, appointed a day, in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What did we learn early in the chapter? God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus' resurrection. This is all about the man. Jesus. Paul is not the first <clears throat> to pick up on this and to preach this. You'll remember back in John 5, verse 22, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus affirms that God the Father has given judgment of the world to him, to the Son. So that all who honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, all will honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he has given, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. There's the crucial issue again of the resurrection. Jesus cannot judge the world if Jesus is dead and buried. That's why Paul says he's proved, proved, proven that he is the judge because he's no longer dead and therefore he can judge the living and the dead at the end of verse 31. It's quite a statement. He threw it down. Jesus is your judge. Are you ready to meet him? Verse 32. Now, we go back to the very beginning, which provoked their attention to Paul in the first place. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, look at these reactions. Some began to sneer. Are you kidding? I have buried uncles and aunts and parents and friends and family members, and none of them has ever come back from the dead. And they began to sneer at him and to make fun of him. But others said, hang on a second. We shall hear you again concerning this. Some of them believed. So Paul went out of their midst, came down off the rock. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. That's good news. Among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You know, it's encouraging to me to see Paul's evangelistic efforts are much like yours and mine. Some people make fun of you, some people sneer, some people jeer, some people stiff arm, some people move away from you, and some believe. Paul's message and point were that Jesus is God raised from the dead, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all people, the source of all nations. And our mission as believers is to do what Paul has done in this sermon, to proclaim Christ as the Savior and the judge. We're to tell the world what great God we have, that Jesus as God, is the revealer, the interpreter, the authority, the creator, the knower of all things, the eternal one, king, master, holy, sovereign, good, wise, powerful, ruler of the demons and ruler of the angels, ruler of Satan, true and faithful and patient and righteous and merciful and wrathful and unchanging and concerned and compassionate and emotional and sinless, acquainted with our temptations, immortal, happy with and in himself, jealous, invisible, self-existent, purposeful, almighty, ever-present. All that we can say about God is Jesus. That is Jesus Christ. So, rightly understood... This is the Christmas season. Rightly understood, the incarnation will govern how we understand government. That God is the one who's sovereign. It will define how we view the nations. It will focus our attention on the condition of the souls of those we know. 
And it will drive us to worship Jesus as Lord, Savior, Sovereign, and Judge, all so that we can take who he is and tell others about him. When Paul proclaimed that God became a man, he didn't just proclaim the fact, he proclaimed all that God is, is who Jesus is. He put them together. Well, I trust that as you reflect Christmas and first of the year on who Jesus is, that you remember he's not just a part of our life, but the sovereign point of our lives. If you know Christ, what a God we've been hearing from, from Paul. And if you don't, what a day that you can be here to hear this. Hear Paul explain the one who is dead and is alive forevermore. Let me pray.